0: There is an old adage that American politics is meant to stop at the water's edge and that when on, on the global stage, we're supposed to speak together with one voice. However, I mean, this administration can't even speak with one voice.
1: Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments.
0: Fly over country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff.
2: And welcome to Flyover Country. I'm Joe Arnold, your your Flyover Country Roundtable uh, host. Jared Crawford is here. Kevin Grout, as always, the aforementioned Scott Jennings. We are recording this just for because things change so quickly in the uh, the uh, the situation with Ukraine and Russia so frequently right now that uh, it's about one o'clock on the afternoon on Wednesday, February twenty third, uh, as we speak. We're talking about obviously the sanctions have already been announced yesterday, but you know there's really some questions about how aggressive Russia is going to become here in terms of invading the rest of Ukraine. And that's the question right now, because the breakaway republics, they've already been there for eight years. Uh, I'm not a foreign policy expert, and so I'm a little bit over my skis on some of these things. And it's interesting, sort of like COVID, too, is like we all kind of became epidemiologists, and and now we're all sort of like Russia or Eastern Europe, you know, kind of trying to factor these things in here. But I want to talk to you guys today, uh, and I want to play some sound bites here almost immediately, Jared, just a heads up. Um, from some from the words matter and 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 from your role uh, Scott as a, as a, both a, a politico as well as a strategic communicator your role Kevin in the past as uh, as a speech writer in, in congress and in the senate uh, Jared is a public policy wonk uh, who is with us here today you know what it means with some of these things here and where where we stand and and, and the last thing i want to bring up on those uh, on that score is when do we speak as partisans and when do we choose to speak as maybe with one voice or as I'll say as Americans, but I'm not trying to say one person's un-American for expressing their opinion. But let me start, though, Scott, before we do anything else. Can we let's just play the first soundbite, if we could, Jared, from Mike Pompeo, former secretary of state. Um, and he was on an interview and he was asked about uh, Vladimir Putin. And I find it interesting, first of all, how this has been characterized in the media and how it maybe comes across when you hear it in context.
3: Do you consider Putin a shrewd
4: or a reckless leader overall? Very shrewd. Very capable. I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that. Uh, No, I have enormous respect for him. Uh, He was also an interlocutor that was uh, always well-informed and deeply clear about what Russian interests were. I I appreciated that. Uh, It required the same from us, from me, from my team. We had to be equally prepared. And equally protective of the interests that matter to the United States. He is very savvy, very shrewd. I, I never saw. That's not quite true. I, I, when, I, when I think about some of the things they do in the diplomatic space, and some of the things they do in, in this space where they go off people, I think that's. I think that's counterproductive. I shared that with him very directly. I said, "I don't. You're trying to find a way to connect with us. I think those things just make it really hard for Western leaders to engage with you because it lights up." All the human rights issues and the like. I just don't think there's much game in it. And yeah, you know, he would he would smile at me with a look that reminded me that's a tough world out there. <laughs> and uh, uh, no, I, I consider him a
2: uh... Mike Mike Pompeo in this past week. So interesting for me, the, the Russian TV folks have been saying shrewd and savvy and picking up on that score there. How careful do you have to be when when, when you're talking about it and f- from a political matter? Mike Pompeo wants to run for president. I think. Yeah, um, about where where where,
3: he, where did he say that? By the way, it was like it was a because that's a long riff. Mm-hmm. It was a longer, yeah, and and you know, so I think one of the things about that entire riff is that you don't normally get that many seconds of a soundbite out of someone like that. So to hear him riffing, it just, it just He was being me... interviewed by the Center for the National Interest. It so was, it was a longer form. Longer form, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I pick up out of that, and, I, and I, I'm i assuming his opponents are picking up, you know, why are you complimenting right. Vladimir Putin? I guess um, what I was picking up out of that was more of a strategic description of you're not dealing with a moron here. You know, you're dealing with someone who knows why they're there, who knows what they want, who knows what they're doing, and... Knows how to manipulate situations, so I, I didn't, I didn't perceive it necessarily as complimentary. As complimentary, I, I perceived it as, hey, heads up, you know, we're dealing with it now. If you're a, if you're an enemy of Mike Pompeo or an opponent of him, a political opponent, you, you can imagine how that's going to be, sliced and diced. But I, my reaction to it was he was trying to basically give a warning, which is, you know, we're dealing with a with a smart guy who who is a who's a formidable operator which is something you should be able to admit even when it's your adversary and by the way vladimir putin is clearly our adversary i see people on the right right now yeah. almost acting like you know this is our friends and we should be siding with them and i it, it, these are not our friends okay these people do not have american interests in mind this is our adversary but i think it's okay to be Uh, honest about the the uh, talent levels of our various adversaries. I think Vladimir Putin is probably more shrewd and savvy and talented than other people who might be our adversaries. And and obviously, he's the one we're dealing with now.
0: Right. Mike Pompeo probably should have sprinkled in some more negative words in there, uh, knowing it was going to be taken you know, just as a soundbite. But I think he's right. You need to know who you're across the table from. And he had a lot of interactions with him. You're seeing a lot of secretaries of state or former secretaries of state coming out and saying that this this is not small ball here. Russia Vladimir Putin knows what he wants and he, he knows how to get it.
2: The other interview this past week, Jared, we want to cue this up for the Clay, Travis and Buck Sexton show interviewed Donald Trump uh, talking about Vladimir Putin as well. And he, this is also interesting because what I've only heard of the news coverage of this is that Donald Trump calls putin a genius in the context of it i think you might come to a different conclusion overall about what his main point is
4: said that they are recognizing two breakaway regions of ukraine and now this white house is stating that this is an invasion that's a strong word what went wrong here what has the current occupant of the oval office done that
5: he could have done differently well what went wrong was a rigged election and what went wrong is a candidate that shouldn't be there and a man that has no concept of what he's doing i went in yesterday and there was a television screen and i said this is genius putin declares a big portion of the ukraine of ukraine putin declares it as independent oh that's wonderful so putin is now saying it's independent a large section of ukraine I said, how smart is that? And he's gonna go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're gonna keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well, very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. And we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. Now-
3: yeah, this is, um, this is an interesting clip because obviously the, the media is just running wild on, on the concept that, that Donald Trump is, is complimenting. Vladimir Putin, but I think with both him and Pompeo and and some other Republicans, I, I actually think there's something very, very um, interesting happening with the strategic use of the word savvy. And obviously, they are trying to portray a situation where the United States faces a a shrewd a shrewd adversary, and at the same time, the United States is helmed uh, by someone who is you know out to lunch and uh, and not up to the challenge. And so you can see they're trying to wrap this whole debate around Biden in that you know we put someone in the oval office who's simply not up to the challenge of of standing up to people who happen to be you know uh, shrewd and savvy whatever the words they're using that that's what they're trying to, they're trying to paint a very very unsubtle picture of of a united states that's got a uh, a commander in chief who's not up to it and adversaries who have commanders in chief who are who are decidedly uh uh, smarter you know than our president now you may disagree with that uh, assessment but that's the political sort of p- picture they're trying to paint obviously you know in the run-up to the midterms and beyond
2: politically though uh, let me ask you a question about what our role is here as americans as former presidents obviously donald trump is like no other former president we've ever seen before i don't think i mean historically speaking to be this actively critical of his uh his successor especially in a foreign policy crisis you, know, you also saw the house republicans this past week i don't know who runs their twitter account kevin but you know you have them tweeting a picture of biden after he announced the sanctions on tuesday walking away from reporters who are of course they're shouting questions at him as they as they as want to do as they're supposed to do and the, the tweet was this is what weakness on the world stage looks like i'll go ahead and tell you before i ask you your opinion i think that's unseemly I think when, regardless of whatever the foreign policy crisis is, we can certainly be critical of policy. We can certainly be critical of, of, uh, of our direction, and, 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 and we should call for, as Republicans have been, for the, 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 the most severe sanctions possible to be effective, but to, but to call out and, and, and call the, the president of the United States, who does speak for all of us in, on, on the world stage, you know, weak, I,
0: what what is that accomplishing? There is an old adage that American politics is meant to stop at the water's edge, and that when on on the global stage, we're supposed to speak together with one voice. However, I mean, this administration can't even speak with one voice. In one day, it had um, uh, a source go on the record saying that this. You know, Vladimir Putin was preparing for an invasion and we condemn it. And then they had a senior administration official go on background and say, well, Russians have had troops in these areas for a long time. I, I think there is a lot to criticize about this administration. I keep thinking about the the quote from Secretary Bob Gates, who said there hasn't been a single foreign policy decision in the last 40 years that Joe Biden has gotten right. Um, that, was that, that was before
2: the election. Or, that was before the election. That
0: was, you know, Vice President Biden at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think he's only added to that list since then. Um so I, I think there is room for criticism here. Um, the tweet may may have been too much, and I don't like calling America weak. Uh, but I think, especially at this point, there there's criticism to lob.
3: I'll I'll take the the other side of this, and and I'll just point to what Mitch McConnell said in Lexington, Kentucky uh, yesterday, as we're recording this on Wednesday. He was asked um, about this whole you know why the Russians are doing this now, and and he had a very direct quote, and it was uh, something like. I think they're doing this now because of what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, I don't know if we have the senator queued up, but, but basically he was drawing a line between our weakness in Afghanistan and what Russia is doing today. So, so Mitch McConnell, again, as, as Scott mentioned, at Commerce
2: Lexington, an event on Tuesday.
1: With the abandonment of Afghanistan, that America is not interested in playing as large a leadership role as we used to in my view that's a mistake there will be voids and the question is who will fill them there are three countries that have the potential to fill voids the Chinese the Russians and ourselves
3: yeah and so and so um I I mean essentially he's he's saying what the what the tweet you reference is saying is that when America shows world weakness People come in and, and fill the void. And and there is no doubt. Well, two things are true. There's no question that that you could feel the draining of American prestige around the world when we were watching the unfolding Afghanistan debacle. That's that's true. And Joe Biden has to own that because he precipitously pulled out of a situation all for a talking point. Well, I want to get it done by 9-11. Not, that's not on a military timeline. That's on a political timeline. Number two, what's also true is that and, you know, other world leaders know this. There is a uh, rising distrust of foreign entanglement among the American electorate. I mean, th- I mean, it, it, it's the political impulse that led Joe Biden to, to precipitously pull out of Afghanistan. It's the political impulse that drives Donald Trump's isolationism. It is the idea that we've, we're, we're weary uh, of any more foreign entanglements. We're tired of war. We're tired of our military being deployed around the world. Well, If you combine what we all saw as Joe Biden's incompetency in Afghanistan with the rising sentiment for isolationism among the American population, any foreign leader, you know, with more than three brain cells to rub together would say, this is the time for us to make whatever moves we were hoping to make, whether you're Putin or China on Taiwan or or really anybody else, because they know they've got the United States in 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 the bizarre position of being led by an incompetent, and, and a population that doesn't want anything to do overseas anyway.
0: And I think, unfortunately, it's not just our adversaries who are recognizing this. It's our allies, too. I mean, you look at the Nord Stream pipeline in Germany. We, during the entire Trump administration, said this pipeline is bad because it will give Russia far too much control of the energy uh, production in Europe. And now Germany, until just recently, was pushing ahead with it. Uh, you look at the Middle East when Joe Biden went hat in hand asking them to increase their oil production because it would help – the energy situation in the West. And they said, no, I mean, our, our allies and our partners are looking at this a uh, president as someone who can't be trusted.
3: But this this is the great sort of debate of our of our time in politics, and that is our, our president's bound to sort of follow the crowd. So if, if, if you agree with me and I think you, you do, that most Americans or at least a, a, a dominant portion of Americans politically want us out of foreign entanglements. But in this particular case, you could make a strong argument that it is decidedly not in our strategic interest to let our adversaries or anyone else fill the gaps left by a, a receding uh, United States on the world stage. So is it the responsibility uh, of our leadership to do something unpopular, which is to say, look, I, I know you're, you're weary of foreign entanglements. I know you don't want us around the world. I know you think it's none of our business. And what in the world could this possibly have to do with us at home as we're fighting inflation and everything else? What is the responsibility of our leadership to tell people the truth, which is, I know you don't like it, but we're going to have to get more engaged here. This is where Biden failed on Afghanistan. He went with a crowd and he went with a political impulse. And, and McConnell took a lot of flack at the time for saying, look, this, this is a dumb idea. If we pull out here, the cascading negative consequences are, are going to pile up in a hurry. And by the way, He's being proven right as we speak. Well, and it also goes to the, to the fact that it's not the world that you want to
2: exist; it's the one that you, for lack of a better words, inherit. With either president, you can't come in there and say, "Well, it's not fair that this ex- situation exists." No, you have to deal with it and what those facts are. Now, in, in that situation, he tried to kind of shake up the checkerboard there and and just say, "Well, I'll just gonna go home." But Afghanistan's issues and complications don't go away just because you say it
3: so. And it, and it, and nothing happens in a vacuum. I mean, we're we're being watched every day by everyone else around the world. And so how our adversaries choose to treat us in the wake of that, how our allies choose to treat us. Uh, I mean, this has far reaching. I mean, it's, it's almost like in the COVID debate when we're, you know, we're sitting here, this isn't a debate about, uh, you know, should my kid have to wear a mask today and the implications for today. This has implications, you know, for generations of when you're just, you know, discussing learning law. So I think, I think in the short term political analysis, it's instinctive for Republicans to want to criticize Joe Biden, the smart take here, the smart play is: What are the ripple effects of the Afghanistan debacle? What will the ripple effects be of of Biden allowing Putin this influence in Europe? And and not, th- I mean, yes, we can discuss the political implications today, but the the, the, the long term impact of our decisions and and you know, and encouraging voters, encouraging Americans to think not just what's right in front of their face, but You know, what are we going to be, what world are we going to be dealing with in 5, 10, 20 years? What I like about what
2: McConnell did in Lexington on Tuesday is not just the speech or the portion of the speech about Afghanistan that you could maybe say is critical of the, you know, in other words, this is sort of like the, you know, the environment that they created for themselves, but also the fact that he's trying to create policy and trying to basically, you know, encourage the president and the administration to make better choices now going forward.
1: Student needs to learn out of this incident, that he can't stop, start grabbing pieces of other countries in order to rebuild uh, what he would like to rebuild is something similar to the old Soviet Union. This is an invasion. There's some discussion about what's the definition of an invasion. This is an invasion. Number two, this should prompt immediate Implement, implementation of the toughest possible sanctions. So, Kevin, back to your point, very clear.
2: And you were saying before and being critical of the Biden administration. I think that was and, and, and uh, was warranted because they were so inconsistent themselves. You will, you wish at this point that Mitch McConnell was like Henry Clay and maybe he could be Secretary of State. I mean, because literally you need someone to be able to speak that that clearly, that 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 cogently.
0: Instead, who is it that we have leading this effort for the United States? The vice president, Kamala Harris. She was dispatched to Munich uh, and asked, well, you know, she, she was saying for weeks and, and multiple times over and over that we know Vladimir Putin has already made up his mind. And she was asked, OK, well, are sanctions next? And she said, well, we're going to wait, but we know what he's going to do.
3: It, yeah, th- this is, um, you know, McConnell lately has offered – extreme clarity in so many areas of American life where, uh, you know, we're having sort of a squabble amongst ourselves. And he steps into this breach and he offers this clarity. And it is a good reminder that for the last several years, our politics has given us anything but clarity. You know, we have people talking out of both sides of their mouth, issuing contradictory statements, muddled decision making, one day we're this, one day we're that. And uh, and McConnell McConnell's clarity in so many of these debates, and his sort of plain spokenness, um, and it, it's more people should pay attention to this style of politics because I think people... It's mature. It, 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 and I think people want leadership and they want clarity. I mean, look, none of us sitting here are Ukrainian-Russian experts. None of us sitting here, you know, uh, you know, have all the information that, that these guys have as it relates to the geopolitical chessboard. McConnell has it. And when he speaks so clearly after looking at all those facts, I think, you know, for me, uh, I, I want to follow someone who seems to have a clear vision of where we are and where we need to go and what we have to do to get there. And and you just don't get that out of Biden. I mean, Biden does not speak clearly. He does not offer uh, – he, he just he, – he frequently, and this is on topics large and small, leaves you wondering, well, what are we really doing here? And, I mean, in January, in January, on one day, Biden and the Democrats were on the floor of the Senate trying to kill the filibuster rules. The next day, they were using the—literally the next day, they're using the filibuster to try to kill sanctions on Putin's Nord Stream pipeline. It is, the, it is the least clear you can be to say, I want to get rid of this, but I want to use it to do that, and oh, by the way, we were trying to do something for Vladimir Putin along the way. And now they have the audacity of accusing Republicans of siding with or being soft on Putin when they were the ones— who have rolled over and showed our bellies on this pipeline deal? Well, what do you, how do you think Putin uh, interpreted that? He interpreted that as weakness. And so that's why I'm not as critical of the tweet, uh, because I think the parties have responsibilities to say in the moment what we would do. But also, you know, I mean, it, it's fair game to me to criticize what has happened. And there's no question that what has happened is that Joe Biden has made a series of decisions that led to today. That doesn't absolve Vladimir Putin of what he's done. But it but it is to say, I mean, as you said, you just said, he's he's giving McConnell was giving Biden like advice on what we should. Yeah, he needs advice. You no, know? I agree. He needs advice. But that to me is more forward looking. And I think the day of reckoning will
2: come for all politicians and in, in midterms or whatever else in terms of, you know, what we're going to do and, and, and criticize them. But when it comes to foreign policy, I would I, I just feel more comfortable as an American that we certainly we call for and we fight valiantly for the things we believe in but i don't think that you should be undermining the the credibility of the of the president on the world i don't think anybody
0: undermines the credibility of joe biden more than joe biden but but
3: that's my point he's doing it fine by himself i don't don't know know if we need to put an exclamation mark on it but, but i think but i think part of biden's problem is is that and and maybe this is just a problem of the modern presidency is that these guys are surrounded by people who well, are constantly true. telling them Granted. everything you're doing is great, you're perfect, you're good. And they're trapped in these little bubbles, and he's trapped in a bubble of these advisors who have constantly giving him are giving him the most terrible advice. So if occasionally the opposition party says, This is weak, or if Mitch McConnell says, Hey, if you do this, then this will happen. I don't have a problem with that because there's clearly not a contrarian voice among his top staff.
2: I think I think you're exactly right. The question is is that if your goal is to actually change the direction or get his attention, who's going to say something and, and when? This actually reminds me of what we talked about last week on the podcast, um, which was the, the fact that you have Joe Biden kind of trying to clean up the mess that he made at the speech in Georgia. And it was Mitch McConnell calling him out on the Senate floor that clearly got under his I mean that, that yeah. affected him yeah because up to that point because this fit, it fits into whole your whole construct of this all makes sense. Joe Biden is surrounded by he's in the bubble, he's in the echo chamber. And but he listens to what McConnell says. He hears this, goes, "Oh, wait, what happened
3: here?" And and for the and for all of the criticism that that is making you nervous. And by the way, this is this is a perfectly valid view about you know should we be undermining the American president? But for all of the external voices that he may be hearing of a negative nature, or that that are being critical of him, I mean, there's a whole industry of people who make a living. Uh, you know, as sycophants to whatever the Democrats are doing. And so and so it, it's not like the Republican critical voices are the only only other voices on the playing field. There are more than enough voices to drown those out. I mean, uh, there was a guy on uh, Bill Clinton's former press secretary, Joe Lockhart, you know, essentially tweeted over the weekend. Uh, he said, well, no matter ha- no matter what happens it's clear that Joe Biden has reasserted American leadership. So no, literally, no, no matter the outcome, it's it, yeah. we must say that Joe Biden is correct. I mean, think about how l- lunatic that is. No, we don't have to say that he's correct because we don't know how this is going to go. I don't like the way it's going right now. Therefore... I'm right to be skeptical that he's doing the correct moves.
0: It's also at some point, what are we fighting for here? What is this American it's it's the ability to disagree, it's the ability to criticize our leaders. Oh. you know, I don't I don't know if there's a minority party criticizing Vladimir Putin right now. To
2: be clear, Twitter I mean, the House GOP should be able to say whatever the heck they want. I'm not I'm a...
0: sure. not did, did into? Dissent. Yes,
3: when did you turn into such an authoritarian that you're trying to I'm not banished. I have, a question. I have a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on, on a different note, on, on the
2: same issue though, the other thing that I'm trying to kind of figure out or divine sometimes, and I, I admit I'm just a, a creature sometimes of what the media feeds me. Okay, I try to get a lot of different sources. I, I watch a lot of different channels. I read a lot of different things, and I'm unclear. To the extent to which you rely upon the news media to give you an, an under a, 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 an understanding of the gravity of a situation, I'm very unclear here of how important this is because sometimes it's sort of like breaking, breaking. This is World War Three, and then we're going to toss to a package uh, about I don't know about you know the, the 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 new rhinoceros at the the Sydney Zoo, and it just seems that it's not quite. It, it, it's very inconsistent about and to the extent to which I'm like I'm curious
3: that's a what, great rhinoceros I mean, to be <laughs> no, well you're you're raising a, a real and and literally I, I, I keep my Twitter feed on as we're doing these shows because I want to make sure we're not missing something breaking but the New York Times just posted a story that says why Ukraine matters a war would upend the lives of 44 million people and the country's fate has huge implications for the rest of Europe, the global economy and the place of the US and the world that that's a good thing to be writing about because I like you. Sometimes have trouble sorting out, you know, the 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 uh, the scale of this. And at the same time, the other area where I frequently I, I can't get a handle on is we say all the time we're going to put sanctions mm-hmm. on Vladimir Putin. We're going to sanction this and sanction that. I don't really have a concept for how painful that is, how meaningful that is. I, I it, it doesn't to say that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it, it sounds good, and I like the idea of us doing something. But is that the is that the equivalent of us, you know, giving him a, a light tap on the back or is that the equivalent of us, you know, punching him right in the face and, you know, throwing him out of the, the school? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand the scale of it. And to, to
2: the degree to which you believe what Russians or Vladimir Putin says, which I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a Putinite, uh, but, you know, what they have said in their official statements is it's been futile over the years. You ha- they haven't had that kind of an effect. We're prepared for this. And all you're going to do is undermine your own interests. Go for it. So, I mean, it could be bluffing. It could be possible that these oligarchs are going to say, hold on, but you're actually cutting off the,
3: siphoning off the money to my family, and that's different. I don't know. This is one of those opaque situations where I suspect what's going to happen is no one, you know, the average person, and I put myself in that camp, no one really knows, because we don't have access to all the information. None of us have ever been there, you know. Or, have, or we're not experts on this. And so what you, what do you wind up doing? What's your natural inclination to go to your corner and and get get somebody from your corner that you think may know what's going on and then you just adopt their view. And so your view is essentially made by one or two people as opposed to an independent analysis of the of the true facts and 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 this is a complicated opaque matter. It's 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 difficult to know exactly what's going on. So this puts tribal voices tribal voice leadership At a premium. And one of the things about the right right now that bothers me, I mean, there's some influencers on the right who were, you know, one the other day, you know, Candace Owens was saying, just read Vladimir Putin's transcript and you'll see everything that's true. And I mean, (laughs) this is like the dumbest possible take. Like, do you want me to just take his word for it? But there's a lot of people that are going to go to her and say, please prescribe to me how I should feel. Well, that's 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 a lunatic view. But. It's going to have some currency because of the number of people who follow her. As a consumer of news,
2: Jared and 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 policy, we're, I'm curious. We're, I mean, I ask all you guys the same question: Where are you getting your information on this?
6: That's a great question. I, I do think, out of any policy area, probably that the sort of American people consume, there's none more than foreign affairs that we that we do kind of like abdicate that responsibility, right? Like, I feel like we all f- sort of care about tax policy or crime or whatever it may be, and we have a sense of wanting to understand it ourselves. This is one of those policy areas where it feels like you sort of abdicate that responsibility of information at times because it's literally foreign, right? And I mean, uh, th- to many of us, you know, the joke is always like, could could you even point out Ukraine on a map? Like, could most Americans point out? I mean, could some presidential candidates point out Aleppo on a map, right? I mean, th- this yeah. is a-, a legitimate policy area where we abdicate a lot of that responsibility, where do I get my sort of Ukraine information? I don't know everywhere, do you know? a little yeah. bit of everywhere, right? And, and I mean, do
3: we, well, and do we believe that the people, you know, that, that certain media outlets or media sources? I mean, are they any more informed right, about this right. than we are?
0: The twenty-two year old journalist who's writing this from a couple different press releases.
3: Now, maybe, maybe they are, and and maybe they have an education about this. That, but, but I, you know, I mean, it, again, it's a complex, opaque deal. Also, I think. Candidly, to Kevin's point earlier, I mean, some of the information you're getting out of the administration may or may not be the greatest information. I mean, they're 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 tilting it or spinning it to, to create the narrative that they want. That doesn't make it true, fully true. It, it maybe makes it, you know, uh, uh, colored in a way that 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 spins the narrative for their political benefit. So I'm, I'm skeptical of everything I'm hearing, right. and at the same time, I'm nervous about drawing conclusions because. I don't feel solid in my own personal knowledge about all this. So I've been, I mean,
2: just going and trying to soak up any kind of perspective on this. Bear in mind, I'm not saying I'm going to Russia Today television thinking that what they're saying is true. I just want to hear what they're saying. So I actually watched about a half an hour of, you know, it's it's English language, Russian Today TV, uh, overnight, like two nights ago, just for the sake of saying. And it was really interesting because that's the first time I saw. I mean, it, it was, and, and to the Biden administration's credit, it was pretty much exactly what he was predicting they were going to do, you know, a week ago, in terms of some of the uh, disinformation, or for that matter. I mean, it was a whole kind of a, a, a show, and it was it was showing the, the ethnic Russians within one of these uh, breakaway republics shooting off fireworks and and thanking God for the fact that you know they have this freedom now and this this independence. I was just interested in how they were presenting it. Kevin's giving me a look.
0: That's called propaganda, and uh... no, I, I understand.
2: I understand it's propaganda, but I'm. But but my point being is, I want to see what they're saying. I want to. I want to. I want to understand what their people are being fed, mm-hmm. you know, and and how they're receiving the information. Then I watch Sky News. And BBC yeah. out of out of Great Britain. And then I watched, you know, and I really, I, I am going around every channel. The problem is, and this goes back to my original point about trying to figure out how important this is, there was, you know, a couple, like last night, this is like the invasions going on. I flip around to every major cable
3: network and none of them are talking about it. I'm like, well, gosh, maybe it's not that big of a deal after all. Well, I, I think it, if you're running a, a news outlet right now, I mean, you're, you're balancing the what I assume and and I believe are the the extreme world implications of this versus you know what does my audience want to hear today, and and does the average person want to hear more news about Russia and Ukraine, which by the way, we're, yes, we're involved in it, but we don't have troops. Mm-hmm. On the front lines of this. And it's not a NATO country. It's not a NATO country. I mean, we're around it, and obviously we've inserted ourselves into it, and for good reason, but but we're not in it, so we're not fighting. But do they want to hear more about that, or do they want to hear more about the fact that inflation went up again or the fact that gas prices are about to spike or the fact that, you know, uh, more fentanyl deaths are being reported? I mean, th- I mean, there's more stuff that's of an immediate interest to an. So if you're, if you're programming a new show to an audience— and, and an audience, which, by the way, you've spent a long time cultivating and then expecting them to want to desire news about a situation that they don't perceive as being all that important to them today, it, it, it's a tough decision. Yeah. I think it's a tough decision on these programmers. And, and I wonder, back
0: to Jared's point about abdicating your responsibility, I wonder if we will all learn a little bit more as what's happening in Russian Ukraine affects what you were just talking about. It causes your gas prices to go up. It causes your utility bills to go up just because – that's how the economy works. I mean, the Dow had a terrible day yesterday, down hundreds of points, uh, just, you know, of fears of what was going on. So at, maybe as it becomes a little more real to us, we'll, we'll pay more attention.
3: I think the the coverage that I would find most valuable here um, also would be a little forward-looking in that um, th- there's no doubt that there is an isolationist political streak running through both political parties right now. I mean, th- there's significant factions in both parties that want – an American pullback. And so and that's not an illegitimate emotion, given what's happened here over the last 20, 30 years. However, there are there are consequences to that. And I would I, I think this is the first consequence, you know, uh, you know, a, a perceived America on the retreat. This is the first. Con- well, what are the next three? You know, what what are the next three to five things that could happen if the perception around the world is, is that American and the American and the American people are just done with this for the moment. I mean, the most obvious next one is China and Taiwan, but I'm sure there are others that I'm not knowing about or thinking about. And so, again, it's it's the coverage of the potential ripple effects of, you know, the consequences of our political impulses in, in the moment. And to the degree that you care about this or not, I,
2: I think back, frankly, you mentioned the Obama administration a few minutes ago, uh, Kevin. Is that you know it was Obama who pretty much characterized the United States as one of many. Basically, we are just, we're part of this global community. We don't, we're, our influence and our vote, you know, should not be any greater than anyone else's. And there are others who believe in American exceptionalism, who believe in the leadership there and the unique role we play in the world, especially as Senator McConnell pointed out in his speech, or his comments to reporters, or actually to the speech to the Commerce Lexington, he's, he pointed out, is when there's a void, there's only three nations basically who can fill that void. And internationally, China, Russia, or the U.S., which and I think you can draw some pretty clear, you know, uh, uh,
3: contrasts among which of these three is not like the other. As a, as a communications matter and as a tactical matter, what I'm really looking uh, ahead to next week when Joe Biden gives the State of the Union, you know, I'm sure they were planning a, a State of the Union that had something about this in there, but now I wonder how big of a section is this going to be in the speech? Of course, the political... Uh, strategists in the room ought to be saying, "No, no, the American people need to hear from you most about the domestic issues that are plaguing, you know, every household." But I'm guessing that Biden's impulse is going to want to be to talk, put himself in the commander in chief role, and talk about the international issues going on. But is that the correct political thing to do when your presidency is suffering, you're trapped in the forty percent range, and if you go out there and give a speech that's eighty percent about Ukraine and Russia and twenty percent about everything else? Is that going to drag you up or down?
0: It'll be really interesting, I think, because like Joe was saying before, you would expect when you do put on that commander in chief hat, you unify everyone. And obviously the State of the Union, you're giving a speech to a divided audience and you're looking for those opportunities when you can get everyone to stand up and applaud. Uh, So the more they talk about Russia and Ukraine, maybe they're expecting more unanimous support and approval. But
3: the audience you're looking to here is not the audience in the room. I know how all those people are going to vote. But but the people at home, I mean, remember, this guy for the first chunk of his presidency was floating along in the mid to upper 50s, and he is sitting at 40 right now, 40 percent. It's so low. And so there's a whole group of Americans who once thought this was the right answer, Joe Biden, who now don't. And what do you have to say to them to get because, you know, they're recoverable because they were once with you, or at least in theory, they're recoverable. Do they want to hear about Ukraine, or do they want to hear about what you're doing about inflation? And inflation is out of control, and that is, to
2: me, what most people are thinking about on a day-in, day-out basis, which makes it interesting that Joe Biden, I think it was last week— when he first talked about this very very slow rollout of what you know Russia was going to do with Ukraine as far as his predictions, you know, almost punditry on did his you, part. Did you find
3: that bizarre? I, I mean, I personally found them going on television, punditry, yeah. you know, we predicted, and they even prescribed a date for it, you know, right. February 16th will be the day of the invasion. I mean, I, I just found it. Was that, odd. It was odd. It, it's it was odd. Tr- it was
2: strategic, I'm guessing, but it was
3: odd. Well, I, I I interpreted it as one of two things. A, he can't help himself because he wants to be a pundit and not the president, which is also what Donald Trump wanted to be. And B, or B, they, they thought that by predicting an invasion on a certain date, if it didn't happen, then everyone would say, well, look at this. Joe Biden staved off invasion for another day, which is really a a crazy way to try to get a few points out of this if that's what they were in fact were doing
2: but back to one of the things he said as part of that rollout was and it it was a fleeting sort of a comment that made news in in the moment but not as much in the days since and that is he sort of much uh, laid the groundwork for americans to understand you're going to pay a price for this in other words you are going this is going to affect you I haven't heard that repeated that many times. It's very clear to your point earlier, Kevin, with the uh, with natural with Russia being a a major strategic uh, and economic you know uh, partner, if you will, to much of Europe, mm-hmm. uh, and with that natural gas supply being you know being cut off, how that's going to affect the? It's a commodity. It's a worldwide right. commodity, and we already see natural gas prices in this country. Um, at, at basically, we we benefited over the years from fr- no, as an aside from fracking and, and as far as the, and getting used to unusually low prices. But now energy prices and gas prices overall, all that's going to go up. But, but briefly, Scott, he he uh, he made this point. I haven't heard it since then, and I, I I have to be wondering right now what are they doing to
3: try to. Mitigate that. Well, this is a particular political vulnerability for them because you know we were energy independent under Trump. He comes in and we're not now. Uh, and uh, they've done a lot of work over regulatory work over the last you know year and whatever month many months to 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 make us more dependent on foreign energy. I mean that's just a fact. Even this week they were canceling right. federal leases, and now we we have this energy crunch because of the Russia Ukraine thing, which is going to drive up prices. And so I think. Any normal person would say, "Oh, well, I mean, we should just get more energy here at home and try to mitigate this." But he can't do that because his political base hates energy production. His political base hates fossil fuels. His political base doesn't want the United States to be a leader in fossil fuels. The country probably would benefit dramatically from him viewing this the way Donald Trump viewed it, uh, or George W. Bush, or the other Republican uh, you know leadership. But his, his and instinctively he must know what a problem it is to be on the one hand taking actions that make us less uh, less of a producer and on the other hand now facing down an international crisis that's going to crunch us here.
6: Yeah, I also think this is why that sort of isolationist take is amateurish in some ways, right? I mean, if you attend like a libertarian conference at 14 years old, everybody there is an isolationist, and then you realize things aren't that simple. Mm-hmm. And so you want a leader who's not going to be wishy-washy, who's clear about why this matters to us, It has a clear plan. And I think there's just been too much wishy washiness in the last month or so when again, I think I think Americans probably recognize the seriousness of this. A lot of us may have friends who are, you know, in the armed forces or whatever, who sort of think, you know, every six months it's like, Are they gonna go to North Korea? Are they gonna go here? Are they gonna go here? Like you you worry about friends and relatives who are involved. So I think Americans understand the seriousness. They just need leadership that isn't wishy washy.
2: I mean, one last point on the energy issue, and that is a lot of folks hear about gas and they think about gasoline mm-hmm. or they think about like natural gas to heat my home, and that won't be an issue anymore. Well, the, the, what people don't, a lot of people don't understand is that natural gas is also a, an electricity yeah. um, source. Right. A lot of power plants that, with the push to retire coal plants, and which are the most reliable source of fuel for American energy traditionally. But the push to retire coal plants has resulted in, as well as the cheaper price of natural gas, into natural gas being used more for that. Well, if you become dependent upon that commodity, which is more volatile in nature, you're going to have to get used to these prices being far more out of control. In addition, as far as gasoline, which is different, I saw Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, say the other day, well, we have to basically get used to the fact that it's going to be a lot more expensive until we finish this transition over to electric cars. So that's, that's a whole other message.
3: I mean, that, that's, a, you know, that's aspirational. Uh, and most people are like, well, <laughs> I mean, what are you doing for me today? Like, I've got to go put gas in the car today. Right. I can't think about the electric yeah.
2: car I'm going to be driving in six years. And there's no tax greater on the American people
3: than, than the price of gasoline. As oh, far as what they see immediately. Well, I mean, it, it, when you limit people's transportation options, uh, I mean, you limit their opportunities, and you and you strain every household budget, and 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 uh, unless you're living in a place that's near super high quality public transportation, which you know a lot of us don't, uh, it's it's a major, it's a real problem economically, but it's a major political problem because it's an in your face reminder every day of, I got to blame this on somebody.
0: So I guess by saying that prices are going to go up because of what they're doing in Ukraine. They get points for honesty, uh, which is nice, but it, it seems counterintuitive to their messaging. They're not building support by saying, this is going to hurt you a lot.
2: Well, and that's what I'm thinking about as far as a, a wartime president. And there are times where presidents have to come forward and say, this is like a Churchill moment, You know, where you say, we're going to have you know, to, to, to take this on the chin because of this greater ideal. Back to the, your very first point, because we haven't made it clear what our interests are, it's very difficult to have any kind of consensus among the American people.
3: Yeah, and and, and the environment just doesn't lend itself to to rallying here around, you know, one one party or the other. It's
0: interesting you say wartime president and then you pick a prime minister. Can't think of (laughs) an actual president.
2: (laughs) Sorry, I apologize. Let me ask you, Kevin, about a story you picked up on this past week. Uh, Tell me about Tom Cotton in Arkansas.
0: Right. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas uh, has— Whenever he gets up and takes takes a stand in the Senate, it's it's usually a very principled stand, and it means people need to to look out. Um, and it's a stand against the Biden administration. He announced that he is going to put a hold in the Senate or single handedly block the fast track process for any Department of Justice nominee. Uh, because, Which,
3: by the way, includes U.S. attorneys, right. U.S. marshals. Right. You know, like the, even the things in the states that that aren't aren't at main justice. And
2: he can do this as a
3: U.S. senator, right?
0: This is this is totally his senatorial prerogative. He's on the judiciary committee, um, and it, it's because the Biden administration has apparently refused to defend in court four U.S. deputy marshals who are sued. For defending the federal courthouse in Portland, you remember yeah. uh, during all the, uh, the riots and the upris- uh, uprisings in Portland, uh, they're- I think are still
6: happening. Frankly, like every other <laughs> night, they're burning something down.
0: Right. These these uh, deputy marshals were putting their lives on the line. They were being targeted with lasers and fireworks and other ballistics. Put their lives on the line, and for for whatever, and then they were sued. And for whatever reason, the Department of Justice has just deviated from its standard operating procedure and decided either not to defend them in court or not to reimburse them for hiring a lawyer and just left them out to dry. And Tom Cotton, uh, to his credit, stood up and said, well, this is a bunch of BS that these these people are American heroes. They, there's no indication that they did anything wrong because they're still on active duty in a very prominent part of the Marshall Service, uh, ready to be deployed around the country. And so he's calling on Merrick Garland and the president to say, well, wh- what are we doing here? Are, is it just because you don't agree that they were you know uh, pushing back against your base Um, you're defending 70 other marshals uh, in lawsuits around the country what's up with these four
3: it's interesting biden's disdain for rank and file law enforcement people federal law enforcement because you remember when we had the whole kerfluffle over the border guards on the horses and immediately you know the, the the lie that was distributed was they were whipping people turned out to be totally false but Biden almost immediately, you know, went to the podium and and uh, condemned these federal employees, which, by the way, deprived them of whatever internal due process they should have gotten. It, you know, was totally deprived them of that when he when he spoke, what he said was erroneous. He basically branded them as racists uh, and then said, we're going to have a quick investigation and get to the bottom of how these races. You know, I mean, it, it was terrible what he did. Now, we're all these months later. There is no investigation, at least there's no report of one, because you know what the deal is. Right. If you investigated it, which by the way, the guy who took the picture of it that spawned the outrage said, yeah, they weren't whipping anybody. So if you really investigated this, it's gonna end up making Joe Biden look like a ridiculous fool for for buying into a Twitter, you know, rant, as opposed to being sort of a measured administrator of the federal government. But it is interesting. His impulse, his impulse is to always go against go against these rank and file frontline federal law enforcers and I have to believe that's being noticed by police around the country.
2: Well, and it becomes a cultural issue to many respects. I would think that Tom Cotton's not going to suffer any uh, political ramifications for this himself. The question will be is how is this positioned nationally? If 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 Republicans uh, th- via Tom Cotton are holding up the uh, the appointment of of judges or other
3: federal appointees, you know, does that who who pays the price for that politically well i mean i mean to me uh, it's a fight worth having i mean what tom cotton is saying is i'm not going to i'm not going to let the department of justice put in a bunch of people here until you answer some very serious policy questions and remember the way this works at the you know at the us attorney level these us attorneys offices can function just fine without a political us attorney certainly the marshal's offices can as well these are political jobs the president gives them to his you know, in most cases, his political organization, not that they're unqualified in most cases, but the offices move on. You know, the, 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 the career people who work there still work there and the offices uh, can function. But I, I think Cotton is using properly his role. I mean, this is the advice and consent of the Senate right. role. And what Cotton is doing is extracting, hopefully, some answers from the administration. If they were smart, they would just say, you know what? You're right. We're going to defend these guys. This is ridiculous. This was wrong. If they were smart, that's what they would do. It's an easy thing to give in on and do the right thing, and then you get your nominees, and the world keeps spinning. But, but again, just like on COVID, just like on a lot of different things, I, I continuously find myself amazed at just how beholden Biden is to the radical fringe of his base. Who will go crazy? Who will go crazy if he ends up defending these people who you know, the radical fringes of his base believe are the, the fascists who are on the wrong side of Portland?
0: And if Senator Cotton made a great point, if it was so important to have Senate-confirmed U.S. attorneys and all these – uh, states across the country, well, Joe Biden came into office and fired every U.S. attorney that President Trump had put in. So the reason that all of these places don't have Senate-confirmed U.S. attorneys is specifically because of President Biden. And and now we're just left with these these four guys who, worried about buying Christmas presents for their kids, worried about sending their kids to summer camp, are being bankrupted by these aggressive legal bills uh, because the president, their, their commander-in-chief, their, the head of their law enforcement— uh, refuses to stand up for them.
2: Many issues, of course, out there in the news. I'm going to ask you guys, I'll, I'll just throw it out there before we wrap it up and ask for Steen Red herd at the end of the, the program here. What, what haven't we hit on here that you wanted to make sure we brought up this week? Anything in particular?
6: Yeah, I'll start. This is not something you're going to hear me say all the time, but I watched Bill Maher the last couple of weeks, who has become a remarkably reasonable uh, liberal. He uh, absolutely flames Justin Trudeau. This is something that I think... Uh, true classical liberals should be standing up and just torching this guy what we're seeing him doing with these emergency powers and going after people's bank accounts uh and the sort of you know it's gosh it's almost a conspiracy to to attack these people who have supported the truckers bill maher absolutely roasts justin trudeau so if you can check out bill maher's episode from last week just great stuff i want to ask you speaking of the
2: truckers and this was one of the things i wanted to bring up and ask you guys about any predictions you know, there is a convoy uh, that's being projected to happen in Washington D.C. to shut down the Beltway on, I think, Friday, and I'm also wondering if that's going to somewhat be in line with the State of the Union on Tuesday as well to kind of start to bring D.C. to, you know, to to a close or to paralyze that. I know that the the D.C. government as well as the uh, uh, U.S. Capitol Police are calling in National Guard, uh, so it seems to be sort of a, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more prepared. For this, rather than what happened on January sixth, but any, how do you think Americans will respond? I mean, you, you mentioned Canada and how the Canadians, you know, and there's a difference of opinion certainly among the the, the Canadians about what happened there. But this is many of the the grievances that they're bringing up uh, in this freedom convoy in the Beltway are similar to what happened in Ottawa. How do you think Americans will? respond to that kind of a protest to shut
3: down the the roads I think they're going to respond exactly the way you would expect them to respond the, I mean I mean we, look we look at the hands. polling yeah absolutely and uh, now I, I do think the you know the the, the, the the Canadian issue that concerns me the most and 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 makes me grateful to live in the United States the most is the powers that were granted to Trudeau allowed his government to go after the fam the bank accounts of family members of these folks I mean think about the authoritarian impulse required to uh, shut down dissent by going after the bank accounts of the family members of these. I mean, it's pretty scary. And I have no doubt that there are a lot of people on the left in the United States that wish, uh, they had that power to shut down, you know, Donald Trump and, and anybody who supports him. And to me, that's the larger issue at play here is this impulse, this authoritarian impulse to, uh, to shut down dissent that you don't like to shut down debate that offends your ear. Uh, to shut down speech that you find violent, you know this is committing violence against me for someone to say these things. This is a this is a this is a rising impulse. It's a terrible impulse, and and we're at a scary time for I think uh, human discourse when when the when we're giving in to the impulse. Uh, to shut down dissent debate and, and conversation just because we don't like the people or what what they're saying.
2: When some of the Black Lives Matter protesters uh, shut down some streets in Louisville a couple of years ago almost now, uh, it, it was interesting to see there are people who might even be uh, sympathetic to their cause or to what they were doing who didn't like being delayed. And, you know, I, I remember like on Bargetown Road, and I'm talking in Louisville here, I'm just saying I was be curious to see if people are will feel have the same kind of um, – Support for I might you know I I my prediction would be I I agree with their right to protest I agree with what they're protesting about but please don't inconvenience me any more than I already have been.
3: You know the New York Times uh, op-ed page actually took an interesting stance on this uh, a couple of weeks ago and and basically they were standing up for the right of of protest dissent civil disobedience to get someone I mean it, it was interesting for them to be there because that's where obviously there were on the the Black Lives Matter protests I, to me where the line gets drawn is, are you destroying someone else's property? Are you endangering people's safety? Have you injured someone? I mean, in the case of, of some of the protests in the United States over the last couple of years, there were peace, peaceful protesters. There were people there who were who were engaged in, in, in uh, protected speech. And then there were also people who were burning down buildings. Two cops were shot here in Louisville, where we broadcast from, during this. I mean, so so when you cross the line into mass property damage and violence, I do think I do think people have a right to be concerned, but but at the same time, most of the folks engaging in the trucker protest, I mean, they're relatively tame. I mean, they're not right. you know these people aren't out causing mayhem in the streets. I don't think.
2: Well, we'll see if if they prevent congressmen from going to work. I don't know how America. That's great. Work. <laughs> as
3: a conservative, as a conservative, I would say the less the less they do, the better we are. Congressmen
0: <laughs> might actually like that too. <laughs>
3: uh,
2: what have you seen, read, or heard this week, Kevin?
0: Uh, I listen to a great podcast. Um, Louisville's, uh, Roman Catholic Archbishop is, is retiring. Uh, he's he's leaving office at the end of March. And he did a great exit interview with this podcast called The Pillar Podcast. And it was great to hear about his reflections over 50 years as a priest, almost 50 years as a priest, 20 years as a bishop. He was actually the the president of the National Bishops' Conference for three years um, when the pope came to visit. So he, he really has, has thought broadly about a lot of issues facing the church, but also very locally. Uh, here in Louisville, and uh, it was it was a very interesting interview to listen to.
3: Uh, my scene, Red Herd, comes from the world of sports. Um, I'm a huge golf fan, and I, I have been a huge Phil Mickelson fan. He's a lefty. Oh, yeah. I'm a lefty. You know, a lot of us love Phil, and, uh, and I've enjoyed watching him in person, And and um, but <laughs> he... He said one of the craziest quotes the other day, uh, you know, if you follow the world of golf, you know that Saudi Arabia is trying to to pluck the most, uh, some of the biggest stars from the PGA to start their own pro golf tour. And and so Mickelson has, has been somebody who's been entertaining this rather publicly. And so he gets asked about it and he says, they're scary MFers to get involved with. We know they killed Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Well, because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to shape how the PGA Tour operates. And he goes on from there and excoriates the PGA Tour. And so the people have been up in arms about this. What was it? I was wondering when the shoe was going to drop, but I guess KPMG, one of his biggest sponsors, dropped him today. They've they've parted ways. I wonder what's going to happen next. Now, Phil issued a sort of a mess of an apology as well, but this was a good PR lesson, like when, when you shouldn't uh, sort of... You know, just kind of riff out loud on on these topics, and you and, and equating such, you know, such uh, consequential things as the things he lit. Which, by the way, these things he said are true. Right. And then to turn around and say, well, but you know, I, I can use it to reshape the PGA Tour. I mean, a- a- occasionally it would be good to to disconnect your your uh, mouth from your brain and uh, and think it through before you say things out loud. So I I'm a, I've been a big fan of Phil. This was way over the line. This was really stupid. And I'm, I'm interested to see how it continues to fall out.
6: It's always strange to me when like athletes or owners and coaches get involved in the political stuff, right? Like we saw the NBA with the, the China stuff and LeBron being like, well, I don't think people truly understand this issue. And Steve Kerr <laughs> and all it's like, dude, you don't understand this issue. Like, That's right. You like, you know, you have a college degree, LeBron, like, come on. Um, scene red hurt. I was lucky enough to be a part of the American enterprise institutes leadership cohort last week. Uh, and I was able to hear from a keynote speaker, Paul Ryan, which was great to hear him talk about his experiences in politics and give a little inside baseball into uh, how to get things done and how to become kind of a guy you know, or, or gal in a certain area in D.C. And he became kind of the budget hawk guy and then sort of the tax guy, too, uh, to hear from uh, former Representative uh, Paul Ryan, now a fellow at, at AEI. Uh, really, really interesting, cool story. He got into politics young, and this is a millennial cohort. So to hear from him was was really, really cool, really inspirational. Uh, Great speech. You know, it's not a scene read her, but
2: I'll say my my closing comment before I let Scott wrap it up is that my prediction for the State of the Union, amongst everything else you guys have already mentioned, you might recall that Joe Biden was able to kind of reset the campaign um, when he was struggling uh, by by, uh, announcing that his choice for a Supreme Court once he became president, would be a black woman. I predict that the State of the Union he'll announce his Supreme Court pick and that will be a way for you to get that big headline on that uh,
3: that night. I was thinking he might do it the day before right. or a couple of days before and, and give that person their own moment and then go and tout it at the State of the Union. But I, I One way
2: or the other, it'll be yeah. I think it'll be, that'll be the story of next week that he tries to kind of reset some of the narrative here.
3: Yeah, I was interested in uh, some of the McConnell comments we've been we've been talking about today. You know, he got asked about the Supreme Court and said he didn't have a problem with Biden saying he was going to appoint a. An African American female. I've, I've been wondering how that's uh, going going over among the right out there, and and he pointed out that Reagan and Trump had also pledged to nominate uh, female uh, to the Supreme Court. I I agree with you that this should be a part of his State of the Union. I just my gut instinct is you'd want to roll it out in advance. I'm I'm, I'm a little surprised they haven't done it yet. Right. Truthfully, I, I thought they'd be there. They've been d- a little just they've been dealing with some other things one way or Are the they? other. <laughs> <laughs> We hope they're dealing with other things. <laughs> exactly. yeah, we don't really know. Take us home. Yep. Uh, wrapping up today. So, uh, good panel. Uh, we have a big guest coming up, uh, which uh, uh, is uh, Mary Catherine Hamm, noted conservative commentator. Uh, somebody I've been on CNN with a number of times. Uh, she's one of ours. And you've seen her on Fox for years. She's a prolific writer. She's, uh, she's really an interesting person and I think often... Has some of the sharpest takes. She's like this great contrarian, you know. She's she's a she, you can always count on Mary Catherine to have uh, a terrific contrarian viewpoint and create debates in a in a an environment where you know everybody's trying to get everybody to agree. And she's <laughs> she'll dig in on on great uh, on great points. So we were glad to have her, uh, and uh, we'll be rolling that out. We're going to have a, a panel next week after the State of the Union to kind of break down what Joe Biden uh, did, and then hopefully hopefully sometime in the month of March we're going to have a baseball show because it means baseball decided it was going to have a season and uh, we'll have a baseball show. So we got some good things in the offing and uh, we're glad, uh, glad everybody's with us here on the fly over country podcast community. Thanks for listening this week with fly over country with Scott Jennings. Fly over country with Scott Jennings is a production of bluegrass media lab coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs
0: and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for
1: landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.